This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Tim O'Connor. Tim is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Excelligence and the CEO of LifeCubby, one of their subsidiaries. Tim has also served as a Marketing Vice President at Siemens and at Unisource Worldwide. On this episode, Tim talks all about quantitative marketing and explains why he believes that every marketer should have an understanding of basic quantitative tools and methods. He identifies some common gaps in marketers' knowledge and explains how marketers can be more rigorous in how they analyze problems. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in studio, Tim, what's going on? Hey there, Ian. It's great to be here today. And, you know, you and your colleagues at Mission.org are really doing some terrific things. So thanks for the opportunity to spend an afternoon with you. Yeah, and thanks for coming by in studio. Always good to have people in studio. This is exciting because someone else with a military background uh, in <laughs> studio, which is always fun. Chad and I, who uh, are normally the ones talking army stuff. So we'll get into uh, some of the things that you learned from the military that brought you into marketing, but tell me a little bit about your current role. Sure. I am Senior Vice President of Marketing at Excelligence Learning Corporation, and I'm also CEO of a company that we own called Life Cubby. It's a child care center management and family engagement software SaaS business. Yeah. So before we get into that, um, what does marketing look like at Excelligence? Sure. Well, Excelligence Learning Corporation, if you take away all of the child care center chains in the United States, we're the largest company in early childhood education. And what that means is virtually everything inside of that classroom or child care center except for diapers and things that are in the kitchen, we basically manufacture and sell to those schools. Uh, that might be a private independent entrepreneur who's running a child care center with 50 or 100 students. Uh, and it might be a chain, it might be a public school, it might be at Head Start. And so marketing for us is both a combination of brand marketing Uh, as well as we have product marketing because we have our own products, as well as more of a customer type of a marketing approach where we're trying to sell and market to that customer who has all the needs and we want to position ourselves as the company who can provide all the services. And and we do that through both a field sales organization, uh, inside sales organization, online channels, resellers, and so on and so forth. Awesome. So how did you get into marketing in the first place? Well, I have to be honest, a lot of luck and a lot of grace because when I had the door open for me for marketing, I candidly didn't even know what marketing was, nor was I actually even looking to get into marketing. So I um, graduated in college uh, with a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Radio, Television, and Film, and I had graduated from the Army Corps of Engineer Officer School, so I'm also a civil engineer. And my first job was as a sales engineer at Honeywell's Building Services Division in Wilmington, Delaware. And what I sold were what's called energy retrofits. And I would go into existing buildings, and I would um, recommend and sell to them ways to renovate their heating and air conditioning plants and the control systems. Mm-hmm. Now. This is pre-internet and pre-web. So we didn't have Salesforce Pardot. We could have really used that back then. And nor did we have the the good fortune to have um, Alec Baldwin from Mitch and Murray <laughs> show up with the Glen Gary, Glen Ross uh, re- leads. And uh, that would have been helpful too. 
So I, I don't know how I came up with this idea, but we basically had to be hustlers. And, and so I went into the drawing room and I pulled out drawings for buildings I wanted to prospect with. And I pulled out different parts of the drawings and made copies. And I would circle things in a big red marker about things that could change and renovate and how much energy they could save. And then I created personal cover letters for each of those prospects. And I went over to FedEx. And you know how you get those like circular tubes that like a poster comes yeah, into? Yeah. yeah. So I got I got some of those and I wrapped up, put, you know, put the drawings in there and put the letter in there. And I wrapped it up in this really bright gift wrapping paper because Honeywell's logo is a bright red and mailed those out. And then a couple of days after they received them, uh, reached out to the prospect and it was tremendously successful. I mean, I got leads, I got I got proposals and I got a lot of sales. And I had a great boss, Frank McFadden, and he was telling the folks up in Minneapolis where Honeywell then was headquartered about what I was doing. And it just so happened, and this is where the luck and grace comes, that they were looking for a new marketing manager uh, for energy retrofits. And I didn't know that what I was doing was what we might call today field-based product marketing. Yeah, totally. Right? right? I was just I was just trying to get leads and get sales. And so they knew what I was doing was marketing and they interviewed me and ultimately I, the person that got the job. And so they sent me through, you know, a traditional marketing program development type of thing or strategy, targeting, positioning and product marketing and pricing and promotion. I mean, the whole gamut with a big M for marketing. And so uh, basically that's been my way to get into marketing and never looked back. I, I've done a couple other things along the way, but I would say, you know, if somebody says, what's your profession? I'm a professional marketer. That's how I got in. It's really interesting because I think a lot of people got their start marketing in marketing before they actually had a title as marketer. And I think it's, it's also probably why a lot of people think that, uh, you know, anyone can do it. And it's like anyone could do any, any job, right? But I think the, the true folks are those that are extremely detail oriented and, can make sense out of the numbers and can make these intelligent decisions. You worked on a lot of intelligence initiatives uh, during your time in the military. What what do you think that time taught you about marketing and how did it inform your approach? Uh, I tell people that actually I learned probably as much about marketing in the army as I did uh, at Honeywell. I was an S2 for a period of time in the army and an S2 for those who are listening is the in essence, the chief intelligence officer for a battalion. A battalion is about 800 soldiers. And you're responsible for trying to understand where the enemy is. So let's kind of transla translate that over to like the civilian world, the competition, right? Where are they coming from? What are their strengths, their weaknesses, what are the opportunities, threats, things like that. And in order to do that well, there's four things that they teach S2s to do. And uh, I think good marketers do these as well. One is you have to find the truth. Um, it's very easy to believe something, but you better understand and, and really dig and dig to find the truth about what might be happening and, or not happening. Uh, to do that, you have to be really curious and you have to ask yourself, well, why is that happening? Why is that happening? And, and to do that, you got to get into the weeds and you have to keep asking questions. Sometimes it's known as the five whys. And, and then finally, you have to be really good at both pattern recognition of things that might not be very clear to others and pattern recognition that might confirm, let's say, the opposite. You're constantly looking for things that say, what I think to be true may not be true. You're looking for this pattern. So it comes down to those four things, you know, the truth, curiosity, into the weeds, and pattern recognition. And I think any really good world-class marketer does those four things really well. So you, you take this uh, military career and you kind of figure out marketing on the fly here at, at Honeywell, but how did you get to Excelligence? Sure. So there's a lot of jobs along the way. I spent some time at Siemens and I was a CMO at a couple of different divisions at, at Siemens. And then uh, I was a CMO uh, position at a company called Unisource, which is... Um, uh, about a $5 billion, then it was about a $5 billion industrial service products types of company. And then I had a career change. I did a conscious career pivot to the education field. Uh, I went from real big companies to real small companies and startups. I mean, education is the second largest industry in the world. And 
there's no industry in the world can have a bigger impact on people's lives than education. It's the root of, of everybody's abilities to, to accomplish something in their lives. And uh, so I did a number of startups and small companies for about 10 years. And I was selling an ed tech that I was co-founder of and was thinking about what I wanted to do next and was looking at different opportunities. And I found out about Excelligence. They were looking for a SVP of marketing. And the thing that's different with Excelligence than the other ed techs and education companies I was at is, is starting early. So one thing I did learn in post-secondary education is while you can make an impact on people's lives, it's often too late to make as much of an impact in people's lives as you think that you might be able to make. Study after study says that first five years in somebody's life is so foundational for their future. And so being at a company that was focused on the early childhood education side and being the largest in the industry that's not a school, it just seemed like a really rewarding opportunity. So that's how I got to Excelligence. And then about a year ago, we bought uh, Life Cubby, and uh, it's been a terrific opportunity and very rewarding too. So you are an SVP of marketing, and then you're also the CEO of Life Cubby, which is one of the products within the company, correct? That's right. Um, so how does like how did that come about, and why why did you choose to to have kind of both of those roles be dual hatted, as they say? Well, one of the reasons that I joined Excelligence was because of the background I had in ed tech, mm-hmm. and the CEO uh, thought that that would be a really great add to the team. And being a founder as well, because you, you'd a founder founded a well. company. That, yeah. That's right. And so we we have acquired, actually, Excelligence has acquired uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven, nine companies over the last, say, three years. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking at buying a company like that when I first joined. And there were a number that we looked at and um, I ran the due diligence and we wound up purchasing it. And then the plan was then for me to be the CEO of it. The, the founder stayed and she's doing a just terrific job. And so what what's helpful with me being both uh, having a marketing aptitude as well as having a ed tech and a founder type of perspective, then I'm able to help her and her team in the area of growth. Because yeah. startups, it, it's about growth. How do you get growth? And and you have to be fast. You have to be nimble. And it goes down to things, like I said, you know, the curiosity and the patterns and the weeds. Uh, how do you do that to grow a company? That's Those things will help you, especially if you have an emerging market and you're trying to understand where is the opportunity for you to play because things aren't going to work out right away. You try this and you try that, but you want to have some thought about it before you just start throwing things against the wall, so to speak. So you are unbeknownst maybe to our listeners, um, working on a book and this is, this book is about how every marketer is a quant or I guess needs to be a quant for those of our listeners who don't know, I guess let's start with like, what is a quant? Sure. A quant is is a person that is using data to help them make decisions. Let's use an example outside of the marketing realm that that people might be able to visualize, regardless of what type of marketing they might do. So did you ever see the movie of The Big Short? Uh, ten, no, actually I haven't seen it, but I but I have read the first chapter of your book. So Okay. Um so I, I do know I do know I know roughly the story. I haven't seen the movie. Though. Okay, great movie. Christian Bale uh, is one of the people in it. So it's a it's a movie about, well, you've probably maybe read or seen the movie about Moneyball. Yeah, Okay, sure. great. So it's the same, same person wrote both books. And it's about using data and information to find things that other people don't see. So if you think about the example of, let's use Moneyball since you you've seen that and you know the story. So before Moneyball, the way people, scouts picked players was a lot of instincts. They believed this player was going to be good because they fit some type of profile. But um, Billy Bean, who was the, the general manager of the Oakland A's when he brought in quant thinking in terms of the athletics, the Oakland A's, he wanted to get into the truth not just believe this player, let's get into the truth. What really is going to make us get 
the amount of wins that we need in order to get into the playoffs. And he did all kinds of statistical number crunching, and they basically came up with two things that seemed to be highly correlated to wins. And that was, one was on-base, I guess, on-base percentage, and the other one was um, hits. I forget yeah. exactly which of the two were. But that that's quant thinking. And through that, then they were able to look for players who matched that profile, regardless of what, you know, some scout might say, well, they, they run funny or they look weird. Well, Billy Bean didn't care about that. He wanted to be driven by what the numbers might, might tell us. And that's what a quant is doing. It's, it's constantly looking for those relationships, those correlations and, um, looking for high, high correlations between the two things. That's what a quant does. And, and marketing does that. Yeah, no, marketing does that. And I think, you know, traditionally the, the, you know, quantitative analyst role in Wall Street, what people, you know, are probably most familiar with quants is that this was an investor thing. Um, this is what, you know, people on Wall Street did. It was this blend of, you know, math and finance and computer and all this sort of stuff. But ultimately, I think what, what you are, you know, kind of positing here is that future marketers or current marketers, um, but specifically the marketers of the future are going to have this quant skill set. And those are the people that you've actively um, tried to hire. And you've had a list of questions that you've kind of walked through to get these folks to try to find these talented folks. And I would say that there's a really strong yeah, correlation here between the growth marketers or the growth hackers that have kind of seen different trends and kind to, and tried to figure out a way through the numbers with kind of this same same skill set where you get into the and we'll get into this later the the other side of this which is you know there could be you a b test yourself into something that you shouldn't be doing why do you think this is novel why do you think that this is something that people aren't working on or aren't looking for or aren't building their skill sets to be right now as as marketing leaders sure let's let's first define what modern marketing might be all about so it's more so now applied engineering when you think about all the systems that we have and all the numbers. And by the way, this is whether it's brand marketing or performance marketing or pricing or product management, et cetera. They all have lots of systems, all have lots of data. And when you think about marketing today, it's, it's a high stakes, fast paced, mostly online, data rich, and, and oftentimes zero sum game, right? So that sounds a lot like Wall Street. It sounds a lot like online gaming. It sounds a lot like going to Vegas and being in the World Series of poker, Yeah, right? And modern marketing is that as well. And I think that people struggle with that world, not because of the numbers, actually. I think the numbers are teachable. So what is algebra and, and two plus two equals that? I think the numbers are teachable. The part that they struggle with is the abstractness of it. So what I mean by that, if you think about the movie, The Big Short, all the Wall Street people who believe that the, the mortgage monk, uh, market was not going to crash, they all had numbers and they had, all had quants. But what the difference was is the people who bet against the market they kept on searching for the truth. They kept on not just finding something that agreed with their premise. They didn't have cognitive bias. Yeah, totally. Right. right? So they, that's abstractness where you keep going into it, where you look for, as I mentioned, uh, patterns and curiosity into the weeds. Pattern recognition is one of abstractness where you're, you're seeing three things that may not seem to really go together, but when you step back, you see the mosaic. I think that's the part where people struggle with because really good quant people, that's what they are able to do. Uh, marketers who have a lot of data oftentimes will recite something like my conversion rate was this or my, um, uh, my abandoned cart rate was that or uh, this is how many users that I have. But when you ask, but why did that happen and where did that come from and how do you get more? That's where they, they struggle because it's the abstractness of it. I think a lot of marketers that we talk to really want to be more analytical and they need some help with the data. I think that they are getting to the point where they're 
having cl more clarity around what is happening, but not the why and not necessarily running experiments that are kind of truth seeking experiments um, to your point about, about trying to find the, the truth, but more running experiments to prove their hypotheses rather than test them. Have you found, I mean, what are, what are kind of some of the, um, well, let's go into some, some quick examples of this and then we'll get into the, to the questions that you ask, you ask people. What about something like net promoter score? This is something that would be potentially a really good example or a bad example. I think it's a really good example. I'm assuming that most of the people listening know what net promoter score is. It's, it's without a doubt known as the single best number to reflect the healthy growth or not of a company. It's not no, not so much comparing your company against another company in a different industry, but rather you against your peers or you against yourself over yeah. time, right? And so I'm, I'm not going to go into how do you calculate it. We'll just assume people know that. And if they don't, they, they should check it out. So when I was at a company called Unisource, we had a struggle with one of the businesses in growth and the head of sales for that business, he swore that it was because of fill rates. The issue was the operations people weren't able to fulfill the customer's orders. And the last salesperson or sales manager who told him a story, that was his data point. This customer said they didn't get their order complete and on time. And that's why sales were down. And that's plausible. That's absolutely plausible. On the other hand of the uh, the head of operations was completely on the opposite end of the spectrum. He would cite data left and right. 98% of the time, an order was filled on time and complete. So you have this big argument between two executives, and I'm sure anybody listening to this has probably seen this before. You have two people that have data and information, and, and they are talking over each other, and they disagree. Mm-hmm. So I joined the company and I implemented a net promoter score survey and net promoter score on itself is just a vanity metric. Now that may seem sacrilegious, but it's as much of a vanity metric as just saying, what is your customer satisfaction rating? Okay. It's high, it's low, whatever the case may be is. If you want to improve it, what do you do? You know, so net promoter score doesn't tell you what to do to the why. It tells you what's going on, but it doesn't tell you how you got there. Imagine watching a football game and at the end, just seeing what the score was. You don't know how anybody got to that score. You don't know why it happened and you wouldn't know what to do different next time. Yeah. It's like getting your blood pressure taken, right? It's not going to tell you what you're eating. It's not going to tell you if you're exercising. It's just going to tell you if it's good or bad. That's right. So what what I did was I also added some additional questions and, and those questions would deal about things like sales rep responsiveness order completion, order showing up on time, customer service, and on and on. And what you do is you you do a questionnaire where you ask how well we're doing on each of those. And you ask everybody who did the survey also, how well would you recommend us to somebody else? That's the net promoter score question. And then you do the correlation between the two. And what you're trying to find out are what are things that seem to really move the net promoter score? That's um, the statistical side of it. And that's going into the curiosity side. What's going to move the net promoter score? And through that survey, the number one thing we identified was the issue was sales rep responsiveness. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't fulfill rate. It was the sales reps responding. Now, you start to unpack that. Why was that? What happened was there was a change in the sales force's direction from taking care of the existing customers to focusing on getting new customers, getting growth. Guess what? In the process of trying to get growth, the existing customers weren't getting their calls responded to by the existing sales reps. And in a wholesale distribution business, that customer can get that packaging, that paper, that bubble wrap, you know, a dozen other places. And if they don't get a call back, they need something they call somebody else. So it was sales rep responsiveness because the sales reps weren't taking care of the existing customers. That's what you can identify when, really, when you really get into that. And that's that's a role of marketing because then marketing can lead inside of the organization. What do we do different about that? Do we need new products, new services? Do we need to uh, communicate differently? What do we do? 
What are some other ways or stories that you've seen that kind of illustrate this point? I, one, one of the spe- things specifically I want to talk about was R-square. Maybe you could explain that a little bit. Sure. So I mentioned earlier about what modern marketing is, and it's basically a big online game. And when you think about it, marketers are gamblers. That's what we do every day. Every day we make a decision. Do we take the company's money and gamble it on red, black, number 23, green zero, take another card? We are gamblers. And in the process of gambling, now let me ask you this. You got a favorite casino in Las Vegas? Ooh, man, this is a great question. We're going, I, we're going there for a weekend, you and I. So we're, yeah, what's, your, what's your casino? I, I better know. Um, I'd probably say MGM. So my friend, a uh, good friend of mine is the uh, restaurant manager at Hakkasan. So shout out to anyone going to Vegas, go to Hakkasan. But um, probably MGM. Okay, so we're going to be flush, man. We're going we're gonna to get front row tickets at yeah, and, no, yeah. Well, I, at a minimum, we could get a free drink at the restaurant. That's for sure. There you go. So what's your game? What game do you like to play? So I'll say, ah, this is a great question. And please choose a game that I know. Yeah, well, so <laughs> my favorite game is they have this game at MGM specifically that's like this super old like horse racing game. It's like these ponies run around a fake little track. Like it's a digitized game and it has each horse at odds and you bet on it. It's great. But I'll just, I'll, I'll say black. I like black. Blackjack's good. Okay, good. Blackjack. Because I know that game. And I know the other game you're talking about. Yeah. That's the one where you have the little water guns and, you know. No, no, it's it's, it's that that's <laughs> similar, but different. Yeah, this is like this like thing from like the 50s. It's like this ancient relic. And there's only like one in Vegas, I think. And it's this one machine. It's always packed. Anyhow. Cool, cool. Okay, so imagine you're playing blackjack. And I come up to you and I say to you, hey, Ian, if you have a margarita in your left hand and if you are sitting a certain way in the chair and when the dealer gives a card you say wildcats now i'm just making this up and if i tell you 75 percent of the chance of the time it's going to be a a 10 or an ace and I tell you, I've done this 2,000 times, and that happens. Margarita in your hand, sitting a certain way, wildcat. Might you try that bet? Sure. Okay. And if it's successful, you'll do it again. So what we have here is not causality, right? We have correlation. Obviously, the margarita has no bearing on the card coming up. That's, you know, that would be um, causality. What we're talking about is correlation. And, and since we're gambler, gamblers as marketers, if I can show you some ways that give you an edge, then you would take that bet. And that's what R-square is all about. R-square is a statistical term that deals with correlating two items together. We'll give an example that a marketer might use. Uh, you are with Coca-Cola and you want to know how does weather influence the sales of Coca-Cola in Atlanta? As it goes up hotter, it sells more. As it goes down colder, it sells less. If you knew that, then you could use that to determine when do you do your advertising because you know you have a heat wave coming on next week. Okay, let's blanket the airways with Coca-Cola ads, right? Uh, on the other hand, if you're in San Francisco and you found out that as the temperature goes down, well, nice warm cups of Pete's coffee so those of you who are not from the Bay Area, come to the Bay Area, get Pete's coffee. It's great. It's delicious. You might use that the inverse way. So it gets colder. You know next week it's going to get colder. You're going to blanket the airways with Pete's, or you might have some promo codes that you send out to your loyal audience, right? You're going to use Pardot to yeah, do that, Yeah, that's right? exactly right. Email automation with Pardot. It's fast and easy. You got it. Love the plug. Yeah. And, and, and what you want to find out is how much does it seem that the movement of one item seems to relate to the movement of another item? And that's what R-square is. You've probably seen this in a scatter plot where there's all these dots on a X and Y grid of a, of a chart, and then there's a trend line through them. That trend line, you can do a calculation, and actually Excel has it. You just press a button, it gives you it. It's going to give you what's called the R-square. And what it's going to tell you is how much does the movement of, let's say, temperature seem to explain the movement of sales of Pete's coffee, right? 
And you can do that with all kinds of things in marketing. So you can use that in the, in the sense of knowing how reliable the data might be. That thing with a net promoter score. So if, if you have a survey and it's very lowly correlated, well, it doesn't mean anything. But if it's very highly correlated, the movement of a sales rep responsiveness to a customer saying they're going to recommend you or not, then you know that's something you want to bet on. And you can do that in the area of, let's say, brand marketers. This is a good example. Brand marketers think that maybe numbers don't work for them. But actually, let's use Target, all right? So by the way, hopefully all these companies become nice advertisers for you because we're yeah, giving them nice uh, shout outs. They probably need a custom podcast. There you go. So at, at Target, you go to Target, you see right next to the big red Target dot on the left side, it says expect more. On the other side, it says pay less. Well, they would have probably tested a variety of different terms. So just use an example. They could have done get more instead of expect more, and they could have tried spend less instead of pay less. They basically mean the same thing, right? So you do different surveys with those different combinations of those words, and you might say, how likely will this phrase influence you to purchase? So expect more, pay less versus get more, pay less. All we did is changed get and expect. If you do enough of those, you can do a, an R-square calculation and to determine how much does one word seem to influence the change of whether or not somebody is going to say that they would buy from you or not. And that's what you can use in branding. And good brand people will use that to help actually determine which phraseology they use. And here's why. Ultimately, you want to know what the power word is. So I don't know what it is at Target, but expect more and pay less are two different phrases. And it might not be surprising if one is much stronger than the other. And if you knew that expect more was stronger than pay less, let's say two to one through all the calculations and using R square, then in your advertising, you might decide, okay, 70% of the time, I'm going to emphasize things that deal with expecting. Mm -hmm. And only 30% of the time, I'm going to deal in my print advertising and my online advertising in terms of the, the words that I use that would talk about paying less. And this is what it unlocks for you as R squared is, is this correlation and the, and how much you can believe the data or not in terms of, does it seem to influence something? In your book, which, um, we gave a, uh, we got a sneak preview. You talked about a pilot called, uh, Kermit Tyler. Can you share about more about this? Sure. To go into that, let me just first start out with the notion of believing something versus knowing something. So you've probably heard a phrase, something like this. It's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we are certain to be true that just ain't so. Yeah, totally. Right? So what you have there is the notion of belief versus knowing. And there's a grand canyon between those two words. And a lot of times, look, I, I, I have fallen into this trap too, and I still do at times where I believe something and it's not true. We fall into that. We're humans. So there was this great psychotherapist, Carl Jung. Probably heard of him. Yeah, we talk about Carl. I mean, you probably look around the, probably got a few of Carl's books somewhere. Uh, yeah, we talk about him all the time, uh, all the time on, on Mission Daily, one of our other shows. So Chad's a huge fan of our CEO. Well, I tell you what, you should turn this into a coffee bar because you have one heck of a great library here. yeah for those for our listeners who don't know we have uh i mean i don't know gotta be 500 books in our uh, in our studio in our podcast studio here very awesome so anyhow he said something to the effect when he was asked do you believe in god and he said i once believed in god now i know now i'm not getting religious on anybody but think about that there's a big difference between i believe in it versus i know it yeah so, totally that's a great point right so let's go into to lieutenant tyler all right so You've probably heard of the date, December 7th, 1941. So that was a date that they say lived in infamy. On that day in the morning, there was a, a squadron or so of American bombers that were coming in from San Francisco to um, Oahu. At the same time, uh, 100 miles or so north of Oahu uh, was the Japanese fleet of five aircraft carriers and over 400 planes. 
And then finally, there was two soldiers on the north end of Oahu on a radar installation, just set up the day before, wasn't really trained on it, but they could see if there was a blip or not. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about truth and curiosity and in the weeds and patterns. And so what happened is these two soldiers saw a blip and they contacted their higher headquarters as all good soldiers would do. And it took 15 minutes for Lieutenant Tyler to contact them back. And what he said were four famous words, don't worry about it. So about 45 minutes later, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. And an hour later, 2000 uh, military members were killed. Five battleships were sunk or grounded and America entered World War II. Now we were going to enter World War II anyhow. I mean, it was very clear. Every, all historians would say that was going to happen anyhow. But what happened is the lieutenant believed, oh, I know that there's some planes coming in from San Francisco. It must be them. Yeah. He just believed it. He didn't search for the truth. He didn't say, well, you guys called in 15 minutes ago. Tell me, I'm curious, what does it look like now? Do you have an idea of what direction they're coming from? Because if you look at a map, San Francisco is northeast of Oahu, not north of Oahu. It's a big difference, especially if something's 100 miles out. So he wasn't curious about that. He didn't say, well, what's happened in the last 15 minutes since you called in? Anything different? What else do you think it might be? He wasn't getting into the weeds and he didn't look for any patterns that might be different. Heck, he could have just sent up two airplanes and sent them out 50 miles and say, tell me what you see. And so the story there is how we can fall into the trap of just believing we think we know what it is when it just ain't so. And certainly, look, what we do in marketing is not going to start a war. But in our own little worlds, right, in our own little worlds, and we have our own little circles and things like that, we get stressed because we're trying to accomplish certain things. And it's my experience that when we don't search for the truth, when we aren't curious, when we're not into the weeds, when we're not looking for the patterns, that's when we fail as marketers. And that's when you fail as a, as a radar installation commander. And there is a, there's a silver lining here to, to Kermit's story as well, which is that number one, there was a board and determined that he uh, didn't have the proper training, supervision, or staff on which to work with. And so he was cleared of any wrongdoing which kind of begs the question, like it's somebody's fault, right? It's, it's always the leader's fault. That's it's always right. the leader's fault for, for failing to check or giving the right resources or whatever it is. And I think it's a pretty important takeaway for a lot of our listeners that are marketing leaders where how many times do we ask someone junior to analyze the data or to provide something or to look at something um, without the correct level of oversight or the understanding of, you know, what is the thing that we we should be looking at this data for? What is the correlation that we hope happens or our hypothesis that we think could be the case um, and not just assume that, you know, the classic, uh, you know, don't assume because it uh, lets you fill out the rest. But, but I think that that's, it's an important point. And Kermit Tyler had to live with that the rest of his life, you know, but he did make up making a uh, Lieutenant Colonel anyways. So uh, shout out to, shout out to the late Kermit Tyler for, teaching us all a valuable lesson. That's right. And I want to add to what you just said about uh, the leader. If you think about it, if, if you brought in a developer and, and there was the CTO or CIO of a company, I'll bet you dollars to donut that CIO or CTO could do a little hacking. Maybe not as good as their developer, but they could sit down and they could do some, some hacking together. I bet you if you brought in a somebody who's working in accounts payable, accounts receivable, um, FP&A of a company, and you brought in the CFO, I bet the CFO can do a trial balance sheet. I bet the CFO can do a variety of different calculations in terms of leverage analysis, et cetera. What I wonder is how many times can a CMO sit down with that frontline person who's working Salesforce Pardot, who is working the analytics, who's looking at Google Analytics, can they get into the weeds with them and can they show them how to do it? I think that's the gap is the, the CMOs and, and the directors don't have the skill sets sometimes to teach their frontline people because 
they didn't have to do it. And I think that's part of it. They, they, they didn't have to do it 10 years ago. I mean, you just think about the advancement of what's happened over the last 10 years. Those are skills they never, they never built earlier in their career. And they're the leaders now of the organizations. It's my belief that they have, they have to learn then those skills uh, to get into the weeds with their frontline employees, especially if you're a company less than a billion dollars. And, and that may seem like a lot of money, but a billion dollar company probably doesn't have a marketing department much bigger than, you know, 60, 70 people, right? So there's only two or three layers there. You, you need to be into the weeds. So you have a stringent test for hiring that I wanted to go through a few of these questions. You have 10. Maybe we'll link them up in the show notes. We'll link up all 10. Mm-hmm. But you have a stringent test that you that you run people through. Let's just do three of these. And I'd love to hear why you ask these and, and what are the reasons. Okay, this is number, well, it'll be number one for our list here. This is a brand question. How can you identify the power of each word within a tagline as they relate to a customer's likelihood to purchase? Why do you think that's an important question? Sure. So that goes back to the thing we use an example of target, right? In terms of understanding the power of words. But let's kind of go 20,000 feet, so to speak. What I'm really trying to do is, you think about interviews today of any type of candidate for any type of position and always start out with the niceties and tell me about where you went to school and where you learned and about this job or that job. But very quickly, you want to pivot to, if you're like a developer, you quickly start to pivot soon into, tell me about what you have on GitHub and here's 50 lines of code. Tell me what's wrong, what's broken, right? You want to try to identify the skills. Now, by the way, if you don't go into that and you stay with the niceties and tell me about the history and this and that, you're actually interviewing on a skill, but the skill is storytelling and the skill is persuasion. Now, those are great skills for marketers, but I don't know that that's going to really translate well in terms of ability to do the job. So I want to get into some of the quant side to try to help understand a more deeper thorough understanding about their sophistication as a marketer. So as I mentioned before, with the branding side about like a tagline, how do they come up with a tagline? And, and instead of saying, how do you come up with a tagline? You can start out with, here's this thing in terms of, I'm going to use this approach to identify the power words. How could you do that? That will help me understand whether or not they've actually ever thought about that. Have they actually ever got into thinking about that? Um, do they know how to do that? Uh, so that's why I use, I like to, I like to get past quickly the, if you will, again, the niceties and, and assessing their skill of storytelling persuasion and get into the heart of the matter. Can they do the job? Right. Okay. Next one. What is derived features and how do you identify them when researching what features to add or improve in your product? I think this is like, the most important question to ask a product manager. And let me tell you why. Most products, new products fail. They fail miserably. Study after study will tell you that. Uh, I mean, sometimes 60, 70% of new products fail. And there's a lot of different reasons, but oftentimes the features are wrong. Now, by the way, one of the features is price, right? So if you talk to a product manager and you say, how do you do that? They might in an unsophisticated way say, well, we had a list of features and we asked people to stack rank those. Now, by the way, you can do this if it's an existing product or a new product. Let's deal with it's an existing product to just make it simpler. So you're a software product manager and you have to identify what are the new things that you want to do because you only have 500,000 or a million dollars of dev work. Not everybody works at Google, right? So most companies have limited dev budgets. And so in that case, what you're doing is in a stack ranking, we know this, everything's important, right? And there's a lot of compression. So that's what we would call um, stated importance. Now, here's an example. If I ask you what beer you drank, and if I brought a thousand people in here and I weighted it based upon how much beer everybody drinks, and I, can, and I said though to everybody, what do you drink? what's going to happen is it's not going to be the beers that actually people do drink. In fact, the top three selling beers in the United States, 25% of beer sales are Bud Light, Coors Light, and Budweiser, the king of beers. But 
people don't say that. People say to market researchers other things like, you know, like the world's most interesting man says, I prefer Dos Equis, right? Well, I wonder if he really drinks it because he didn't say he drinks it. He goes, I prefer it, but he didn't say I drink it. And so a way that you can get, which is called derived, is really the, what do they really do? And the way you would do that is you go back to our question, R square, and you go to our question about um, net promoter score. So you might say, rate us on search, rate us on checkout, rate us on product selection, rate us on navigation, rate us on on the pictures that we have, and so on and so forth. Again, if you're, let's say, an e-commerce site, and you'd also have them rate you on net promoter score. And what you can do is you can do a statistical correlation between each of those features, and you can find out how much does one seem to influence the net promoter score more than another. That's the R-square thing. And then you rate those. And what's surprising is a lot of times the people, what they say is most important isn't indeed what actually is most important. Uh, So that's the derive. That's where you want to find those. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore the stated features. Give an example. Um, Somebody says search is most important, but you might find out what's really most important is checkout. Because if the checkout fails, if it's if it's clunky, right, then they don't buy and they say, I, I don't like your company because I have a clunkiness when I'm at the checkout. Well, that's what you want to fix. You want to fix the the checkout, not the not the search. And that's the derived. And that's so important because you want to have a back to the gambling, you want to have a better chance of winning, of, of succeeding. So you need both because the customer might think I need this. So you want to tell them about talk about that but you really want to work on those derived features that are really the things that truly move things. And going back to like Carl Jung, this is the unconscious stuff, right? Yeah, I I think that's one of those case studies that we saw early on with freemium models with SaaS because there were so many people that were testing freemium for the first time of like very value-add products that what they're really testing is what people will do to get free stuff, not what people would pay for. Right. And mm-hmm. that's part of the problem is um, feature creep sets in on a freemium product when that person's never going to afford your product ever. Whereas, you know, one feature that if they did add that would actually upgrade someone from, you know, freemium to whatever basic account or whatever it is, mm-hmm. they couldn't grow those accounts because they didn't have that, that type of derived features. Exactly. And this whole thing is about like an, a product manager. The most important thing that they have to do is they better get the features right. Okay. So next question, you said explain incrementality of ROAS. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. ROAS, return on ad spending. As it relates to increasing performance marketing spend within a channel. So increment incrementality of ROAS. Okay. Why is this important? Sure. So one of the biggest gamblers in a marketing department are the performance marketers, especially if they're spending money on PPC, if they're on affiliates, uh, they're putting ads on Facebook, et cetera, right? Click, yep. click ads. Um, so they're spending lots of money. And oftentimes they're not just managing it themselves. They're, they're going to outside people, but even if they manage themselves, they have a budget. So an example of a question I might ask is I might say this, you do a million dollar ad spend and your current ROAS on that is 20X. So you're getting $20 million of sales for a million dollars of advertising. And let's just say for purpose of discussion, you don't ever want to have a return of less than $10. And let's forget about lifetime earnings and all the rest of the stuff. Just make it simple. And company A comes to you and says, man, we can help you. We can get you growth. You spend us an extra $100,000, so $1.1 million, and I can get you a 19X ROAS, so well above the 10, and the question is, would you take the bet? And without putting you on the spot, the answer is, you shouldn't take the bet, just using the parameters that I had, because that 19X at $1.1 million is $20,900,000, so $900,000 more in sales than the million, you spend $100,000 more to get 900000 more in sales. 
that's a 9x ROAS. And what I find time and time again is marketers will say, sure, because it's a 19x ROAS. The incrementality is, what's the extra $100,000 going to get you? And I find that that's where the marketers don't get curious and they don't, they just look at the end result. Again, they can say, here's what the number is, but they don't know the why. Now, if you have an unlimited budget and you're just trying to get growth for all purposes, you know, have at it, right? But most companies in the real world don't operate that way. They, they have limitations on what they can do and, and they're looking for efficiency. So what I'm doing with that whole question is, do they understand the financial mechanics associated with making those bets? Oftentimes they don't. They, they know the end result. They can report what it did, but they can't tell you how they got there and they can't tell you whether or not it was a good return. Because it's basically just like you're spending your own money if you're putting in the stock market. Was that a good return? There's a bunch more questions. We could, we could do this all day, including uh, what's our square, which we talked about a little bit. Uh, what is a linear regression and what is a multivariate regression? A bunch of other good stuff. Very technical. How do people usually do on this? Not well. <laughs> Not well. And I've talked to a, a number of uh, folks that I know that are headhunters and for CMOs. And they'll tell me time and time again, the CMOs, they struggle the most with it, um, with, with these, because they haven't been brought up on thinking this way. VPs of marketing, directors, et cetera. But, but even frontline people, because a lot of times people go into marketing. Look, I, I don't want to disparage anybody who has a BS in marketing degree, but a BS in marketing is basically BS. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you learn? Yeah, I mean, and I don't, think that that's a, I don't think that that's an indictment of people who studied marketing in college because I was not a marketing major, but I mean, I was a business major, so I, or excuse me, I was a management major, so basically even more BS. Um, oh, by the way, I'm, I, I have to be first in line. I, I have an undergrad in radio, television, and film. I mean, what does that get you? Yeah, totally. But I think that it's, it's a great point. I, I've said on the show before that I went back and was looking. I still had my, my textbook. And you go back and look, and this is before Facebook, right? You're just like automatically, not saying you can throw out the principles, but like tactically, if you are not even considering Facebook, for it's like, you know, not necessarily super relevant. The uh, search stuff in there was pretty rudimentary. Like if you're not considering search in Facebook, you'd have uh, 80% more of your budget that you'd be, you'd be working with. So I think that it is an interesting point. Like I think for people that did do that and developed a love for marketing products, getting things out in the market, I think that that's exciting. And that's the point of college anyways. You're supposed to learn, get excited about stuff and, and love learning, not necessarily uh, put a bunch of stuff in your brain that's going to help you for the rest of your life. That's right. And unfortunately, there's this big gap then. And that's why there's such a growth in companies like yours, right? Mission.org, which is trying to help solve the gap, right? Lifetime learners, right? That continues to have to retool their self and have to learn new things. Why there's a big growth in all kinds of self-learning sites, anywhere from big ones like Coursera to Udemy to just going to YouTube and looking at things. The challenge is getting good content. Totally. That, that's, that's the challenge, right? Because we, we do not live in a world that doesn't have content. What we live in a world where most of the content isn't that good. And, and that's why having people like yourself is so critical because people have to know that there's brands they can go to that can get the content that's really good that's going to help them. Well, I appreciate that. And I think a lot of it is about what is cutting edge. I mean, that's, you know, as soon as it's written in a history book or in a, in a book for school at that point in time, you know, at the current rate of, of marketing beyond case studies and things like that, obviously there's infinite things that you can learn from the past. Pretty much every single, you know, famous business executive has cited biography as one of the most powerful tools that they had in their arsenal, you know, from Warren Buffett to Oprah to Steve Dobbs, that things like that. I mean, learning from other people's stories is extremely critical, but to get cutting edge tactics, you need to 
actually be doing the stuff. You need practitioners on the ground that are actually executing those strategies, not just kind of the uh, the pie in the sky stuff. Well, that's right. It's it's there's a lot of great books about golf, and you can read about golf, and you can read about swing mechanics, and you can read about the holding of your hands and the and the feet and working all that. But sooner or later, you got to hit a golf ball. Yeah, and you might miss a a bunch of times. Okay, before we get into lighting round, I wanted to know what do you wish you had known before going into your first CMO role? And I guess we could blend this with, um, you know, what's your what's your advice? So what do you what do you wish you had known? And then what would be your big advice to a to a first time CMO? That if you fail, it's not the end of your career. I think that when you're when you're starting out, and by the way, even when you're a senior person, there is sometimes an unhealthy level of fear. Fear is okay, by the way. If you're in the jungle, you want to be aware. And and if you see something going through there, your body is going to get you kind of moving around because you don't know, is that a kitty cat or is it a lion, right? So, So that's what that mechanism is there to help you with, right? But when it can be too much, when your mind can start playing tricks on you, it can it can hurt you. And I'll tell you, I, I've had plenty of times in my life where I forgot that message. Failure happens. You're not going to hit 100%. I mean, geez, you know, the best shooter in basketball right now is probably Stephen Curry, right? Yeah. Yeah, now the guy can put in a ball from half court. It's amazing, yeah. right? But he doesn't hit all the shots. He misses a lot, right? Yeah, yeah I think he's still like 44% for three, and he's, yeah, he's like the greatest three-point shooter ever. Right. So, um, so I think it has to have to know that. And I, I didn't know that at the beginning. And, and it, there were a couple of times where I had some doozies and I was really afraid, you know, that I was going to lose my job. And my, my boss was smart enough to say, no, you don't, don't know that you're learning this, you're learning that. And I'm not talking about being CMO of a, of a billion dollar place. I'm talking about the first time in terms of a, of a leader in terms of marketing, where you have a handful of people working for you and with you. Let's get in the lightning round. Fast and easy questions. Just like marketing with Pardot. Fast and easy. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast. And that's where the good stuff is because you can learn about B2B marketing automation. Thanks to them. We love Pardot. You will too. Fast and easy. Are you ready? I don't know. We're going to Vegas? (laughs) Maybe I'll, I'll ask some Vegas related lightning round questions. Number one. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Oh, that's an easy one. You're, you're going to think it's weird, but Google Analytics. That I Sure, how's it fun? You tell me. Oh, I, a couple of times a day, I just open it up and I see we one of our businesses is an e-commerce a business and it's very large. And it's fun to look in there and see how we're doing. I mean, remember, we're gamblers. Yeah. It's, this is a game, right? If, if you're playing name your game, whatever it is online, you want to know and you see how you're doing. You want to see how you are on the leader score, on the leaderboard, right? I can just open up my app. And to show you how important it is, it's on the first page down and to the left. So it's the easiest. Closest thumb button. Exactly, yeah. right? And I can, and it's already set for the day because every time I, I have it as the default it's being the day and I see a graph that says how we're doing today versus last year on the same day. Favorite one day getaway in Northern California. Oh, that's an easy one. We are just so blessed with all the national parks and state parks within a two-hour drive of anywhere in the Bay Area. So any any state park, any national park in, in, the, in the Bay Area. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Bad Blood. And I read the book. I know it's, there's a, I guess HBO or something has a documentary about it. Just absolutely fascinating. And to me, the fascinating part isn't actually Elizabeth Holmes. And everybody wants to put her up as the poster child. I'm more fascinated about the people that that didn't do the due diligence, about the folks at Walgreens and Safeway. I'm sorry, they're probably not going to be a you know an advertiser now, but the absolute ridiculousness of these folks invested tens. In Safeway's case, I think it was well over $100 million dollars. And I know how big companies work. The board of directors had to had to approve those capital expenditures. We're just talking about a complete, absolute failure of multiple levels through the organizations. You know what? Good for you, Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a, it's definitely a, it's a Kermit Tyler esque cautionary tale. You got to, uh, got to find the truth. That's right. Let the buyer beware. And everybody could have done their due diligence, including no really serious venture capital fund who invested in stuff like that was investing in them. So we talk about patterns. That's a pattern recognition. Somebody should have said, wait a minute here. If this is a really good investment, how come Andreessen Horowitz isn't investing in them, right? How, totally. how come, just name your company, right? So that's the pattern recognition, which is it's the inverse pattern. It doesn't make sense. What about what ad campaign have you seen recently that you're envious of? I have great respect for Trader Joe's. I think oh, yeah, these folks, great. these folks, knew, they know who they are. They, they know their messaging. I don't know if you know this, if you go into a Trader Joe's, there is homage to the locality where that Trader Joe's is. So the one in Monterey has paintings inside of it different than the one that is in uh, Pacific Grove. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because the one that I go to has Lakeshore like painted on the, yeah, which is in Oakland. Right, right. So here's this massive company. I mean, they're owned, I think they're owned by Aldi, which is the German food company, right? A big, whatever, grocery store chain. Trader Joe's started in the U.S. and got bought, I think, by them or one of the, one of the, I don't, I don't know the complete story there. But the point is, here is this massive company that has a, has a local feel. They, they, their stores are branded to the locality. They're small and intimate. And they have, other than the liquor, I don't know, 90% of the stuff they sell is Trader Joe's. Yeah, and, oh and, yeah. Right, and they play this, like with the Italian foods, you know, they have a little name for it, I forget what it's, it's Giuseppe's or something, right? Yeah. Right? So I think they've really done a great job of locking in the customer. And I think that's one of the things that marketers sometimes forget is to lock in the customer. Because when you just focus at growth and you don't keep the customers you have, you have this leaky bucket that you have to keep putting more in to just make up for the people you lost. And it's a heck of a lot less expensive to keep an existing customer than get a new one, right? And so they, I just think that they just nail it all the time in terms of in-store marketing to help a customer remember why they come to Trader Joe's. It's it's just a local place that I go to, even though I don't realize it's a multi, many, 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 many billion dollar company. Most people probably don't have any clue about that. I love that. And I, they do do it. They, it's also feels so local. They all, all of their products and all that sort of stuff. It feels like it's a mom and pop shop. Okay. Final question for lighting rounds. What are you most excited about for the future of marketing? I think marketers have so much at their fingertips that they can use. And it's exciting. Exciting doesn't mean good or bad, by the way. Exciting means the most, you know, excites me, right? So it's a good and bad thing. We have all this data and that can really be done and used for really terrific means, but it can also be used for really bad things and poor things. So it excites me in the sense of a negative in that way, right? And I think we as marketers have to be really thoughtful about how we use the power of data and how we use the power of things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Case in point, there's uh, something I listened to on NPR the other day. They're using an example how AI run amok in some product that was being used to identify whether or not somebody had pneumonia or not and taking a picture and, and looking at different things. Well, ultimately, though, the people setting up that machine had to decide what data set the machine could look at. The machine doesn't decide initially. You have to feed it with one of the things they fed it with was whether or not the picture was taken in a hospital or it was taken into the doctor's office. Well, what happens is people who go in the doctor's office tend not to have pneumonia. When you have pneumonia, you're going to the, you're so sick, you're going to the hospital. So the machine was giving a lot of weight to, and this is a product, this is relevant to marketing because it's a product management thing, right? It was giving a lot of weight to it being a, a doctor's office taking picture 
Therefore, the high, it was giving it a high level of false negatives. It was saying they don't have pneumonia because it just assumed, well, they're from the doctor's office. We just assume very highly that it's not pneumonia. So that created false negatives. And this is where we as marketers, be it product managers, be it branders, be it you know, performance people, we have a really important task in front of us is how do we market responsibly? Because it can be all exciting about all this data that we have and it's all at our hands and our fingertips, et cetera. But if we apply it in wrong ways, I mean, we have minority report. And I don't have an answer for that, by the way. I mean, I'm, I, I don't, but it's, it's a brave new world. It's exciting, but we got to be really careful. All right. Anything else that we missed? It's just been great having you on, Tim, and chatting. We really appreciate coming in. Uh, anything to plug? Any uh, any final stuff that uh, people should check out? Well, if you own an early childhood center, uh, or if you know somebody that does, or you have a child that goes to an early childhood center, then put a good plug in for Excelligence, uh, maybe discount school supply, maybe really good stuff. Life Cubby. That'd be great. Awesome. Tim, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.